You're listening to the sound of four massive 2,000-gallon tanks filled with filtered water, and swimming around in circles in these tanks are about 100 striped bass from the Chesapeake Bay. Some of them are over two feet long. Striped bass are opportunistic, so the bay is kind of like the buffet. They'll eat spot, menhaden, white perch, uh, they pull up blue crab, anything that's out there. That's Lonnie Gonsalves. He's a student from the University of Maryland who's been studying these fish as part of his graduate work for the past two years. I'm kind of the uh, new guy here at Oxford. Uh, I'm a graduate student down at uh, University of Maryland, Eastern Shore. Um, I came on with the graduate sciences program. It's ministered through NOAA's Office of Education. Lonnie uh, is studying how diet affects the immune systems of the striped bass and what role diet plays in the fish's susceptibility to pathogens in the bay. Once he finishes his work with NOAA's graduate sciences program, he's set to become a full-time NOAA employee at the Cooperative Oxford Lab. And that's where we are today, on Maryland's eastern shore, on the banks of the Chesapeake. Lonnie's study is one small example of the kind of work that's going on at the lab, and the research that's done here is about much, much more than just striped bass. We're joined today by Dr. Bob Wood, the director of the Cooperative Oxford Lab, to find out how this small research facility helps to keep the ecosystem of the Chesapeake Bay healthy and in balance. And as you'll find out, what's learned here can help us better take care of not only the Chesapeake, but all of our estuaries and coastal areas around the nation. It's Thursday, July 8, 2010, and you're listening to Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. Okay, we're going to head inside the Cooperative Oxford Lab for the rest of the episode to sit down with Dr. Bob Wood. Bob has served as director of the 50-member lab for the past six years. We began our conversation by asking him, why is it called a cooperative lab? We're called the Cooperative Oxford Lab because we are a unique blend of two parts of NOAA, uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service and the National Ocean Service, specifically the National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science and the National Ocean Service. But that's not the most unique part, he said. In addition to the federal researchers from NOAA, the lab is also home to state employees from the Maryland Department of Natural Resources. They actually technically own the resources in Chesapeake Bay. They're state waters. And they can help us better tune what we do and how we do it to meet the needs of real managers that go out every day to try and either restore or protect the Chesapeake Bay and other coastal zones across the nation. So you may ask yourself, Why is studying the Chesapeake Bay so important that it warrants this special federal state laboratory? Bob said it's because the bay provides for a great learning environment and a study area to help understand and develop a strategy for confronting the stressors that are deteriorating our coastlines around the nation and around the globe. And it's not just another estuary. It happens to be the most productive estuary in the world, and it's the biggest estuary in the United States. It also was first colonized, one of the first colonized by Europeans. And therefore, what we come to think of as modern, more modern land practices, land clearing, development, now paving land surfaces with impervious surfaces, just more people eating more food, providing for more waste streams into the bay. Those ills are being felt in the coastal ecosystems throughout the world. If we can understand how to best confront them, through management practices, policies, and restoration activities in Chesapeake Bay, then we can transfer those technologies and those insights throughout the country and indeed throughout the world. 
Today, the mission of the Cooperative Oxford Lab is quite different from when it first began operations 50 years ago. In the past, it was more about stopping the spread of specific diseases that affected oysters and shellfish and fish like the striped bass. Now, while these activities are still important to the lab, Bob said that the research today is more about the big picture, about providing a broader context for studying an entire environment and ecosystem and weighing that against human uses. So what we try to do is take a more holistic approach. We look at different watersheds within the Chesapeake Bay, and we choose those watersheds very strategically so that we compare watersheds that have mainly agricultural usage to watersheds that have mainly urbanized uses to those that are more mixed or you might think more balanced. We look primarily at water quality and seafood issues. We also look at diseases that harm both humans and fish and shellfish resources. And when we do that, we go in to take a look at what is the big picture here and how is it different from watershed land use to watershed land use. That provides us with the ability to help contextualize decisions that politicians, managers, and actually individual taxpayers must make. The idea that drives the research at the lab is that ecosystems, not just the Chesapeake, but nearly all ecosystems on Earth, are asked to provide services to humans. So to understand how to manage these complicated systems to keep them healthy, we need to look at more than just one stressor at a time, more than just, say, how one fish is being affected. Nearly every ecosystem you can name, if it isn't inhabited by humans, it's visited often by humans. And we're doing that for a purpose. We're asking something in the ecosystem, whether it's as an export of our waste streams, or whether it's tourism, or whether it's fisheries resources and food, water skiing, transportation corridors for things like natural gas, as in the case of Chesapeake Bay and other areas. We're asking something to that ecosystem. Unfortunately, we tend to address each environmental situation, each stressor, on a one-by-one -one basis. The Cooperative Oxford Lab is trying to change that focus as they study the bay. Bob said that it's one thing to provide science and advice to decision-makers along the bay about what needs to be protected or where it's okay to develop, but what's really needed is to attach dollar values to this science and advice, because that's how the world works. We could hit one by one and say, that area is just too pristine, we like it for some reason, but this area can be developed. At the end of the day, though, what we really need to know is, what will it cost you? What will you gain by developing in terms of tax dollars now? But what will you lose, on the other hand? Will you lose a pristine crab nursery area? Will your striped bass start to have lesions in an area that otherwise was a very fertile fishery ground for both recreational and commercial fishermen? And once those stresses start to be seen, you're also starting to lose tourism dollars. So we try to go into these watersheds, in fact, into the whole bay, studying watershed by watershed to give people not in my backyard context. Do you want a new development there. You understand what, why it's good for you. Do you understand what you may have to sacrifice? And can we, at the end of the day, balance dollar for dollar and decide what's the right decision here? So that's what the lab is trying to do through many channels, from the Chesapeake EcoCheck program, an annual report card developed in partnership with the University of Maryland, to our scientific studies that look at diseases in the water using advanced molecular technologies like a crime lab would, to disease in fish, which uses culture like you know, folks use when you go to the doctor and see if you have strep throat, um, to just sampling the fish. How many are there? What's the diversity? And we take a look at all those indicators, and we package them up in the context of the different 
watershed land use comparisons. And we're, we're working now with partners to try and get economists involved to start to put a dollar value on what does it mean to be an agricultural area versus a developed area versus a more balanced area. And we hope that in that context, we can be more than scientists. We can actually help um, provide science for service that actually gets used by policymakers in a way that benefits the economy and taxpayers. But if the Chesapeake Bay is the largest estuary in the nation, how do they do it? How do they know what to look at in the bay to get that big picture of overall ecosystem health? We try to find things that are appropriately indicative of stresses that we're concerned about and of the reduction in services we're also concerned about on the other end. So we're limited because the bay has very different salinity regimes from place to place. We have to try to pick the right fish or shellfish species that tolerate those various salinities of the places we go so that we compare apples and apples. So, for example, one species that's ubiquitous is the mummy chog. It's a small fish a lot of people use for bait. It's well known in studies of disease as indicators, and it tolerates a wide range of salinities. So we use species like the mummy chog, like spot, like white perch and striped bass, appropriately. So striped bass would not be a good indicator species in some cases because it moves around quite a bit. But when they're young, they stay in one place. So we might pick that as an indicator, a certain life stage of the organism. And striped bass, of course, we're all concerned about striped bass, their health, how they're doing, because we like to know our top predator in the bay is, is healthy as a population, but we also like to eat our top predator in the bay. And so for both those reasons, it's a good indicator, and we try and squeeze it in, even if you can only use one life stage. Shellfish, like the oyster, are also commonly used as an indicator of estuary health because they're sedentary filter feeders. That makes them sort of like a living water sampling device for a given location over their lifespan. Lab researchers also test for different types of diseases in the bay. The molecular tools that we use now are very precise and surgical. We can go in and look at a particular disease organism as an indicator, and we choose that because of its ramifications. Disease is thought to respond to warmer temperatures and to more nutrients. Two concerns we have for Chesapeake Bay in the context of global warming, what we call eutrophication, or over-enrichment of nutrients into the bay. So we can pick out specific diseases, things called vibrio, things called mycobacteriosis, and we can actually measure them in the water. These things often, well, they're natural to the environment. It's when things come out of balance through stresses, on the ecosystem that allow them to, if you will, bloom to levels that are dangerous to humans and dangerous to fish and shellfish. That's what we want to know about, and we want to know about that before it really becomes a big problem in the bay. As Bob said, it's when things come out of balance because of stressors on the environment that we start to see problems, things like blooms of certain diseases. But on a larger scale, the management of the entire ecosystem of the bay can be seen as a question of balance. Striking the right balance that keeps the bay healthy while still allowing us humans to enjoy what Bob called ecosystem services, everything from wastewater management to fishing to tourism. So we wrapped up our talk by asking Bob, just how well is the bay balanced now? I think you appropriately say things are out of balance when you notice a change, especially for the worse. And since the 1970s, in some ways the bay has gotten better, but in some ways it's gotten worse too. We've lost a lot of seagrasses since the 70s, um, nutrients have generally gotten better or stayed the same. 
Some of our species, like striped bass, seem to be doing much, much better. They're officially restored. And other species have actually declined. I think it's our job to stay on top of the status of Chesapeake Bay. That's one reason we help issue a report card here with the EcoCheck program from the University of Maryland. We want to know what the bay is like in ways that matter to human beings. And we want to listen to what people say in response to the grades their part of the bay receives and the questions that they, they ask about, what does that mean for me? And we'd like to thank Dr. Bob Wood, the director of the Cooperative Oxford Lab in Oxford, Maryland, for taking the time to speak with us today. And we want to wish the Cooperative Oxford Lab a happy 50th anniversary. This year marks their 50th year. Now let's leave Dr. Wood with the last word. Humans change every environment they enter. Some people look at that as the natural course of things. Some people see that as a, an evil that we want to try to avoid. So you have to put that in some sort of context. And it's, it's really not for us as scientists or scientists working for service of NOAA to make those decisions. It's for us to try to put them into context. Where are things going? What's the root of the stressors that are causing the changes that people might be concerned about? Are those stressors coming from manageable human activities? If they are, you have to look at the other side. Are the stresses resulting from things we want to keep doing in Chesapeake Bay? Can we reduce their impact? Can we change the number or the rate at which those stresses are being felt? Those are all the kinds of questions we have to answer. And that's all for this episode. A reminder, if you have any questions about this week's podcast, about the National Ocean Service, or about our ocean, send us an email. We are at nos.info at noaa.gov. And you can visit us online, as always, at oceanservice.noaa.gov. Now let's bring in the ocean. This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. See you in two weeks.